Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to this very first weekly energy podcast from the Financial Times with me, Ed Crooks. Every week we're going to be talking about the week's top stories in the world of energy and debating them with experts from inside the FT and sometimes from outside as well. I'm joined this week by my colleagues, Carol Hoyos, who is the FT's chief energy correspondent, and by Fiona Harvey, who is our environment correspondent. Carol, Fiona, hello. Hello. Obviously, the News this week has been completely overshadowed in the world of energy by the tragic disaster on the Deepwater Horizon, the Transocean drilling rig working for BP in the Gulf of Mexico, which exploded uh, last week on, on Tuesday night with the loss of 11 people, we believe. It's clearly a terrible, tragic incident and potentially a very, very serious environmental issue as well. I guess the first thing perhaps to say about this, just when we think about the human cost, the loss of life, is it's a reminder of just what a dangerous business it is still in the oil industry. However many precautions you take, however careful you are about things, there are still very, very risky things you're involved with here, explosive hydrocarbons, and that always carries a risk. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think to a certain extent, we've been lulled into a view that it's it's perhaps a safer industry than it is because the safety record has been pretty good for an industry that deals with the kind of pressure, the kind of explosiveness and flammability of these liquids and with drilling far below the uh, the waterline and very deeply into the ground, you just don't know what you're going to encounter and geology is unpredictable. We haven't had an accident like this for many, many years and so I think we tend to forget how dangerous it is but it's, it clearly is and drilling and capping a well which is what the Transocean guys and the few BP guys who were on that we're doing when it exploded is perhaps one of the most dangerous things you can do within the industry. When you look at the the details of exactly what they were doing, it's it's pretty mind blowing, really, isn't it? The kind of challenges they were facing. When uh, I mean, this is the rig that drilled the world's deepest ever commercial well, which was which they drilled last year on the Tiber Prospect, also for BP, and they weren't operating at those same depths uh, on this occasion. But still, it's amazing, isn't it? What is it? So it's five thousand feet of water, and then a further. 13,000 feet of rock below the seabed that they were drilling into. Tremendous pressures uh, that the hydrocarbons are on uh, are, are under down at mm. that level. So it's inevitable always that there is going to be uh, a very, very tricky business to manage those pressures and to prevent what seems to have happened in this case, which is a blowout of, of oil and gas coming back up the pipe up to the rig. I mean, if if there's anything that makes, makes people uh, of this industry sleep badly at night, it is the, the thought of a possible blowout. And we used to have them a lot earlier in the in, industry's history, which is about 100 years old, but now relatively rarely. And um, in this case, there was a pretty spectacular fire before the rig sank. And it was pretty clear from that, talking to experts, that that was being fueled by methane gas, which is very, very fat flammable. Um, and that chances are what happened is that there was a sudden surge, a very high pressure gas coming out of the, the well that the rig couldn't deal with. Now, it was a very modern rig. They're worth, what, 500 
million dollars. So there's good reason other than that you don't obviously want to have fatalities. There are financial reasons to be very, very strict with your precautions. And there are a lot of technology and a lot of thought goes into preventing exactly what seems to have happened. We, we don't know yet and we may never know um, on this transocean rig. Um, but but it is just a very, very dangerous moment in the life of a of a rig when you cap the well, which is basically when you decide that you've drilled enough and you're going to close close it and, and move on. Yeah. And, and as you say, there is this bit of equipment very specifically to prevent those blowouts right. called the blowout preventer, this big, heavy system of valves and pipes mm-hmm. on the seabed, which is intended to prevent exactly that kind of incident happening. And it, it seems to be the case in this instance that it failed. And I mean, certainly didn't completely shut closed. It's meant to snap Right. Closed with enormous force as soon as there's any danger of a pressure build up and of gas coming back up towards the rig, and it didn't happen, and certainly didn't. But happen we don't fully. know why it didn't happen. Whether it was why. a technical exactly. or whether it was a, a personal um, uh, a personnel issue, and and you know the guys who died were probably the guys guys who are missing and presumed dead. Excuse me, um, were probably the guys who were closest to this, and and they're not necessarily terribly senior people, and they're but they are people who um, who have to make incredibly difficult decisions, tedious decisions on a day-to-day basis to, to say, stay safe, but then split-second decisions when things go wrong. And it's un- unfortunate in terms of trying to find out what happened that uh, it's probably the people who really know who have perished. Indeed. And, of course, the other problem, of course, is that a lot of the equipment, the crucial equipments, at the bottom of the seabed, mm-hmm. 5,000 feet down, that's too deep for divers, for instance. You can't get people down there. So the, the work they're trying to do now to shut off the flow of oil, they're doing all that with robots submersibles from remotely operated mm-hmm. vehicles. That's also going to really hamper any investigation. Obviously, there would have been data probably coming back from the rig to shore in terms of pressure and, and the performance of the well. So some of that data will have been recorded by BP, and no doubt that'll be picked over extremely closely in the investigation. But... As you say, it's not at all going to be easy. A lot of the people who know best what what will have happened are, as you say, missing, presumed dead, and a lot of the equipment will be never retrieved, I guess. I mean, there are two things that, that, that we haven't discussed yet that, that are very big in terms of the fallout. Of course, the human cost is huge, and, and that'll be a big cost as well monetarily, probably in terms of lawsuits for the companies. It's unclear yet, in fact, which company is going to suffer from, suffer most in that perspective. The missing workers are all transocean workers. Uh, but BP is clearly in charge of, uh, of, of uh, cleaning up the spill. There's a, there's a grey area in, in this area, but one of the things we haven't touched on, and I think Fiona would be very good in, in discussing this with us, is how this is going to affect the debate on both climate change legislation, which is going through uh, at the moment in the US, and also on on uh, opening up areas that have uh, been closed to drilling in, in, in the offshore areas of the US, which was something that was announced only three, four weeks ago by President Obama. What do you think? That's right. Um, you know, the, the timing in that sense couldn't have been worse, really, because the decision has just been taken to open up areas to offshore drilling. Uh, and now we're seeing how the uh, human and environmental consequences of that can sometimes play out when there is a, a tragedy like this, although thankfully they are very rare. Um, at the moment, in terms of the uh, environmental impact, it's actually quite hard to say uh, exactly uh, how great that's going to be uh, and where it's going to be worst. As Ed said earlier, we're looking at the coast of Louisiana uh, in the US and, and other parts of, of the Gulf Coast, uh, and there is going to be uh, a, a severe impact on marine life uh, and on, on coastal life and on bird life. But at the moment, efforts are, are going on to try and uh, close off the 
the leaks at the moment and to, to render everything safe, of course, that has been the first priority. And now we're looking at what we can do to try and prevent, what the, the engineers in the area can do to try and prevent massive uh, environmental damage and to try and uh, limit that damage where they can. And, and there's what BP describes as the biggest clean-up effort ever mounted by an oil company to respond to an oil spill. There's, I think now, I think it's 49 boats they've got in operation, most of them owned by BP, but other ones as well coming into the area to put booms up to prevent the flow of oil and also to scoop up oil from the surface of the water. They've got, I think it's five aircraft spraying dispersant chemicals on the, the oil, where of course most of it is in quite a, a thin sheen on the water. Not that much of it is actually a really kind of what you'd think of as a thick oil slick. So they think that can be dispersed with chemicals and they're also making enormous efforts to try and stem the flow of oil, both by trying to get this blowout preventer valve shut and also they're talking about dropping a canopy over the oil, over the, where the oil's flowing out in order to kind of trap the oil there or ultimately the solution which I think is certainly going to be what they're going to have to do is to drill another well into the Mm. reservoir to relieve the pressure to let the oil out that way to let the oil out um, safely up to the surface uh, where they can store it there so the cost of all this effort is estimated I think it's at six million dollars a day they're spending at the moment it is as they say a huge effort but it's certainly something that they're going to have to do if they want to earn the right to continue to operate in the Gulf of Mexico, which is an extremely important region commercially for BP and for the rest of the oil industry, actually particularly for BP, of course, which is now the leading mm-hmm. producer in the US Gulf of Mexico. And it's a, a stark difference in, in uh, how uh, Exxon responded to Valdez, which was seen as a relatively slow response initially, uh, which in the end hurt Exxon uh, there. So BP has learned from that. But more more recently, Hayward must have been thinking about the way that BP... You know, Sorry, Ed, tell me what t- you think. Tony Hayward, the, Tony the BP Hayward, chief the, executive. Exactly. Yeah. How his predecessor, John Brown, had reacted to the fatal uh, refinery explosion not long ago, I think 2005, was it? 2005, yeah. yeah, yeah. In Texas City. And that was seen as, as by the authorities... Um, as not as perfect as it could have been. What do you think? Um, yes, certainly. I think that, that that's right. That, that There was a view after the Texas City disaster, both that BP's safety procedures that leading up to the disaster had been ad- inadequate and that they did not responded quickly and effectively enough to the explosion once it had happened. Now, as we've been saying, the Gulf of Mexico is seen as very important commercially and there's a lot of debate about opening up new areas of the U.S. offshore areas of the U.S. for oil development and exploration. There is commercial interest in this. There is also tremendous U.S. national security interest. There's a lot of concern about uh, future U.S. energy supplies, where it's going to get its oil from in the future, and that's very much playing into this whole debate. Now, there's quite an interesting story we carried uh, in the in the FT this week about uh, Saudi Arabia and the prospect for Saudi Arabia's oil exports, which clearly plays into that debate, yeah. raising the question of how much oil there is going to be available from Saudi Arabia for the US to import. And Carolee, you, you've been taking a look at that. Yeah, I, I was I was looking at the story as we were as as, as it was being filed. Um, and what's interesting is that Saudi Arabia, and in fact much of the Middle East, is using more and more of its own oil. In fact, in Saudi Arabia, with its economy growing and with Riyadh wanting to go down the value chain to refine the oil rather than just to send it overseas immediately and, and, and profit more from from its natural resource, uh, we're seeing that the um, internal demand is starting to eat into 
the available exports. Now, that's not to say that Saudi Arabia isn't going to be fundamentally important in terms of providing foreign crude oil to to the world. Um, uh, But it is an interesting uh, domestic dynamic. And and the reason it was in the news this week was that the head of Saudi Aramco, which is a national oil company in Saudi Arabia and the world's largest oil oil company, in fact, and one of the most sophisticated, um, warned, it was mainly an internal warning, in fact, that, that Saudi Arabia needed to begin to think about how it's structured and begins to phase out its very generous subsidies for electricity and for uh, for petroleum products. He basically highlighted, I mean, this was the the crux of his speech, was that uh, Saudi... um, demand was in, would increase by 250% from about 3.4 million barrels a day uh, to about 8.3 million barrels a day by 2028. Now, Saudi wow. Arabia only produces that's, about 8.2 at the moment. But, right, so, but that's all of their current production potentially could be going for domestic demand. Yeah. That's amazing. Now, I mean, I, I have to, again, stress that Saudi Arabia can produce 12.5 if it wants to or says it can. I mean, the US thinks it's probably closer to 12.2 and isn't doing so because the demand isn't there. So we've got a safety net. This is not saying that, oh my goodness, we're suddenly not going to have Saudi Arabia as an important source of of, of oil. But it does bring up a, a trend that is is actually very important within Saudi Arabia and the region, but also will have knock-on effects uh, internationally. And Because Saudi Arabia, though, is of diminishing importance for the US, right, as a supplier. Yeah. More Saudi crude now goes to China, I think, doesn't it, than to the United States. And the flip but, as well of, of that. It's not only that, that Saudi is less important to the US, it, it's almost more that the US is less important to, to Saudi. China is the big, biggest growth uh, growth area for Saudi. And Saudi Arabia, of course, is one of the most egregious offenders when it comes to uh, <laughs> subsidising <Yes. laughs> energy inefficiency. Right. Uh, and that's going to be a, a big target, I think, uh, in the next few years. Uh, we had the uh, International Energy Agency has talked about this for a while, but now they're, they're really pushing for subsidies to fossil fuels to be reduced because they're so distorting, they cause massive inefficiencies. And, you know, as we can see now, um, they're also uh, having economic consequences for, for Saudi Arabia. So there's also one particular issue with Saudi Arabia and with pretty much the whole Middle East region, which is their lack of investment in natural gas. And it seems perverse to us, but uh, Saudi Arabia has said we're not allowed to build any more gas-fired power plants uh, because we don't have the gas to to, to power them. And they're building oil-fired power plants, which seems from an economic point of view and from an environmental one, um, a foolish thing to do, but uh, just highlights the lack of uh, natural gas in Saudi and in many, many neighbouring countries. Yeah, because they've actually put quite a lot of effort into looking for gas and they haven't found very much, have they? they, They've been disappointed. It's pretty empty in of gas. Efforts. Indeed, indeed. Um, another issue then in energy policy that people have been talking about this week, Fiona, is uh, the UK election, where I gather energy policy has been one of the things that the, the parties, the leading parties, have been debating. I guess fuel subsidies not so much of an issue in this country, <laughs> where we have our extremely high levels of fuel taxation. But what have people been saying? Well, uh, energy and environment policy have been really conspicuous by their absence so far in the campaign. And it's only this week uh, that the party leaders have decided to to start talking about them in a bit more detail. Uh, And we've had all uh, of the main three parties coming out with uh, with their ideas. Now, 
we, we probably don't want to go into a, a great deal of detail on, on what those ideas are, and, and that's uh, that's just as well because the parties didn't provide us with much detail uh, on what their policies are here. Uh, it's more been a question of uh, aspirations and uh, talking about how green uh, they all are. The most detail, I think, has probably come from the Liberal Democrats, who have traditionally been very strong in, in talking about the environment, have had a lot of support from people who rate the environment as an important issue when they're voting. And the big difference between parties, because you know they're all in favour of, of renewable energy, uh, they're all in favour of more energy efficiency, they're all in favour of green jobs, but the, the sort of main difference between them is that the Lib Dems are not in favour of nuclear power and the other two main parties are. The other, the, uh, There's a lot of questions that these uh, sort of green manifestos have left unanswered though. For instance, how are you going to massively increase the number of wind turbines uh, around the UK, which is something that you will need to do if you're going to get to the 15% of, uh, of electricity coming from, or 15% of energy, excuse me, coming from uh, renewables by 2020, which all of the parties are signed up to. And for the Conservative Party, that, that's all about uh, offshore wind. Labour Party is looking strongly at, off, at offshore wind as well. But you really can't do this all with uh, uh, offshore wind, and, and the amount of offshore wind we have at the moment is, is very small. In terms of looking at green jobs and so on, um, the Labour Party is really talking about its recent successes. That's its main point because, um, of course, recently uh, a number of uh, big wind turbine makers have announced that they will set up production plants in the UK. Uh, and that's, that's a big achievement and that's, uh, that's very important. But really that's only, uh, that's only the beginning. Indeed. So I suppose you could say the conclusion of what we've seen this week then is that this kind of very deep water drilling right at the technological frontier that BP's been doing is... As we've been saying, very difficult, very challenging, as we found out, tragically, potentially very hazardous as well. But given the limitations of other oil-producing countries, given the huge growth in demand for oil, and given the limits that renewable energy has got as well, that is something we're going to need. We are going to need this very difficult, inaccessible oil to be produced. Anyway, thank you very much indeed, Carola Hoyas. Fiona Harvey, thanks very much indeed for coming along. Thank you all for listening. And the Energy Weekly podcast was produced by LJ Filatrani, and I'm Ed Crooks. Till next week, goodbye.